Welcome, friends. You're listening to the Ultimate Outcome Sermon Podcast. Here's Richard Elwell with today's sermon. Well, good morning. So this is a question I've never asked before, probably one that you may not have ever heard before, but I think it's kind of an interesting question to start out with. And the question is, have you ever wondered what it would have been like to be one of Jesus's younger brothers or sisters? How would have you looked at your brother as he was growing up? Uh, would, your mother, would, would, would the mother of Jesus, your mother, have ever told you the stories about the angel that came and visited her and told her of the divine conception? Would have you ever heard the stories about the shepherds uh, that came in and worshipped at the birth of your brother? Would have you ever heard the story about Egypt? What if she told you those stories? And if she had, what, what would you think about your brother, and, you know, what, what was it like? What, were they just sort of normal siblings? Uh, you know, can you imagine in their home uh, the kids saying, Hey, Mom, when the bread is missing, how come you never accuse Jesus? <laughs> you know, it must have been an interesting experience growing up with Christ and being a sibling of Christ. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about my own father and his brother. When my dad uh, grew up, he had a resentment for his older brother, not because his older brother had done anything wrong with it to him, but his older brother, his, his older brother Bolt, who was four years older than my dad, really overshadowed my dad. Uh, he was the, you know, captain of the Yale football team. He uh, was in all of the top clubs and fraternities. Here's a picture of him here. He's uh, the one on the third to the left there at the bottom. This is the 1948 Yale uh, baseball team. And up on the top, the third from the right is George Bush Sr. And um, my dad would tell stories of how uh, George Bush Sr. would come over to the house and they would sit around the dinner table and in whispered tones. And my father would always tell these stories kind of sarcastically because he resented the whole blue blood thing. Uh, he, he would tell stories about how they'd sarcastically whisper about their fraternity at Yale, skull and bones, you know, like it was a, uh, you know, a super secret big deal. Well, it was interesting. A, a couple of years ago, my son, Rostin, called me on the telephone and he goes, Dad, you won't believe where I am. I said, where are you, Rostin? He says, well, I'm at the George Bush Library here. You know, he lives in College Station, Texas, where the library is. And I was invited to a uh, showing of, um, was it 42, the documentary on George Bush Sr.'s life. And I'm standing in a reception line and I'm about to talk to George Bush. Uh, Do you think he'd remember Uncle Bolt? I said, yeah, he'll remember Uncle Bolt. Ask him about Uncle Bolt. So he gets to the front of the reception line and he asks him, you know, do you know my great Uncle Bolt? And he goes, oh, yeah. He said, George lit up and he goes, oh, yeah. Everybody remembers Bolt. Everyone loved Bolt. What happened to Bolt? And my my son had to tell him that he died in his mid-30s of a stomach aneurysm. But uh, the reason why I tell this story is, you know, my dad didn't, well, he may have loved his brother, but he resented him. He didn't like uh, growing up under a shadow. In fact, my father's first year at Yale was the year my, my his brother had graduated. He was so intimidated by being under his older brother's shadow that he went to his um, counselor and he said, look, I want to know where 
the best college furthest away from here is that I could go to next year. And he recommended Pomona College in California, where he met my mom. And, uh, and so here we are. Um, of, all my, of all my uncle's admirers, uh, my dad wouldn't have been counted among them. And so as I sit, tell that story, I just wondered how Jesus' brothers uh, came to believe in Christ. H- how is it that the brothers of Christ, the sisters of Christ, uh, at, at least we know for sure two of the brothers of Christ because they were uh, leaders in the church, how did they come to believe that their older brother, Jesus, was their Lord and Savior? I can't ever remember, I can't even imagine my dad thinking about his older brother that way. Not only did they come to believe that Jesus Christ was their Lord and Savior, but they came to believe that Jesus was even their creator. Now, how strange would that be to be a brother of the one that you think created you? When Jesus' ministry first started, we see in Mark chapter 3 that his whole family thought he was nuts. A passage in Mark chapter 3 said when they started seeing his miracles and the crowds that were following him, they thought he was out of his mind. And uh, we see also in John 7, it tells us that his brothers at that point didn't believe in him. In fact, we, if we look at the crucifixion, we'll see that only one of his family members was at the crucifixion, his mother alone. None of his brothers, none of his sisters, only his mother. In fact, we know that because he looks to the Apostle John and he tells him to look to her and treat her like his like like his mother <clears throat> we see later after the resurrection we see that James what became a leader in the church Jesus's brother James was a leader in the church and he wrote the book of James we see that he died to maintain his faith in his brother. We see also that Jude wrote a letter in the New Testament, and in that letter, he refers to his own brother, Jesus Christ, as the one that delivered Israel out of Egypt. He sees his own brother as the God who delivered the people Israel, as the creator who chose Israel as a nation and delivered them out of Egypt. As we continue in our series entitled Four Questions, a series on faith, we're going to, this is going to be our third week looking at the first question. And as you recall, the four questions we're looking at here, the four fundamental questions of life are, where did we come from? Why are we here? What is the right thing to do? And where are we going? So we're still on the first question, where where did we come from? The first week in addressing that question we looked at the difference between the various ideas of our origin. There's really just basically two. One is, is that we came out of a cloud of gas and dust, somehow that organized itself through random processes into celestial beings and ultimately into life. The other is that we came out of the mind of God as God spoke us into existence through his word, uh, where we see in Genesis the words, and then God said over and over again. Last week, we looked at the idea that it, what God wanted to teach Israel, that he took 40 years to teach him this one idea, 
that they do not live by bread alone, but they live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Not only did, do we come out of God's mouth, not only are we an expression of his thoughts, that we are sustained by his thoughts. The very thing that creates us are the things that are, is, the, is the very thing that sustains us. We are spoken into existence, and it is by the will and the word of God that we, we remain alive. And this week, we're going to see that Jesus is the very word that spoke in creation and that sustains us, that Jesus himself is the word of God. We came from Jesus. We are sustained by Jesus. We are saved by Jesus, God with us, the living word of God, Jesus Christ. Where did we come from? The most succinct way of answering that question is we came from Jesus, the eternal, the living word of God. How does that affect our lives? How does knowing that we came from Jesus affect the purpose of our lives, what we should do, and where we're going? We're going to unfold that in the weeks to come. How does knowing our origin affect everything else about us? We came from and out of the mind of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. This morning's message is God with us, and we're going to be looking at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And verse 14, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we look at your word this morning, Father, I pray, God, that you would use this to just expand our vision of Jesus Christ. Lord, his own brothers, who are the least likely to uh, be able to have their minds uh, grasp the divinity of their own brother, the eternity of their own brother, the majesty of their own brother. Help us do what you did in their minds that we might grow in our appreciation of Jesus Christ, our creator. We pray that you'd bless the reading of your word this morning. May we be changed by it as we always are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 14. Verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. The life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then skipping forward to verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the first 18 verses of John chapter 1 are some of the most important verses in the Bible. They make an absolutely and stunning claim about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Now, I want you to, just by way of setting this up, ask yourself, what if somebody told you that Pastor Richard invented the Internet? Or what if somebody told you that Pastor Richard designed the space shuttle? 
Or even better, what if somebody told you that Pastor Richard ghost wrote all of Whitney Houston's greatest hits? <laughs> Thought you'd get a laugh. <laughs> it is not possible that even a single one of you would believe any of that. Those claims are so outrageous. Yet those claims are very small compared to what John is claiming about Jesus here. Jesus is eternal, John says. That is, He has never not existed. He is the very word, the very expression, the very thought, the logos of God. He is both with God and is God Himself. He has created all things, John says. He is the source of all truth and life. And He became a man. He became one of us. And he lived among us to save us from the consequences of our own sin and to number us among his family. That is one amazing claim. And his own brothers came to believe it. For centuries, men and women have been believing that claim. And we believe it yet even today. Now, if no one would believe that I was Whitney Houston's ghostwriter, why would anyone believe that Jesus Christ is our creator? When we question where we come from, the shortest answer is one word, Jesus. People, including his own brothers, James and John, came to believe that very thing because of the evidence. And the evidence continues to unfold even in this day as we experience our living Lord our Creator, Jesus Christ. The theme of this morning's message is this. Our Creator became our Savior. Let's take a look at those verses again. Our Creator became our Savior. Verses 1 through 5 and verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now here's the claim that John is making. First that He has always existed, that He always was in existence prior to creation, that before the beginning, Jesus always had been. He is the eternal Word of God. Jesus is both the eternal Word of God with God, and He is the eternal Word of God actually being God Himself. Now, how is that possible? How is it possible that Jesus could be both distinct from God and indistinct from God at the same time? How could he both have all of God in him and be different from God uh, and distinct from God at the same time? Well, think about the very nature of the idea of being the Word of God. When we think about our words, our words, the words that we speak, are those words distinct from our thoughts? 
in one way, yes, they are distinct from our thoughts. You, you can't say that the sound that we speak is exactly the same as the thought that we think. Yet at the same time, you would say our words carry the very meaning of our thoughts. So in that way, they're both indistinct from our thoughts. They are an expression of our thoughts. They carry the same meaning as our thoughts. But our, our words are audible and our thoughts are not audible. So they're distinct from one another. Another way of thinking about how Jesus could be both distinct and indistinct from God, where he could be both with God and be God, uh, is in this illustration of the sun and the sun rays. Now, parenthetically, the the uh, the word that we translate into with is not the typical Greek word soon, it's pros, which means it proceeds from rather than it is with side by side. So here we have a picture of the sun and the sun rays. Are the, is the sun and the light that comes off of the sun the exact same thing? In some sense it is, and in some sense it isn't. Uh, the sun rays proceed from the sun, and when we say sun rays, we mean something slightly different than what we mean when we just say sun. This, the, the, the actual physical sphere in the sky. And so in some sense, they're the same thing. And in, in some sense, they're, they're, they're different. Now, one way you could really uh, capture the idea of the three-part nature of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is to think about the Son. The Father is like the sphere in the sky. Jesus is like the light that proceeds from the Father onto the earth. The Holy Spirit is like what happens, what the, the effect of the sunlight in the plants and animals that are given life by the sun. The spirit is what is in us that, that, that you, takes the light or the energy from the sun and produces life, like in a tree, like photo, uh, photosynthesis. Uh, so you have these three functions of the same body, the sun and the light. And in the same sense, Jesus uh, is both with the Father and is the Father. He proceeds from the Father and carries the very essence of the Father forward into the world that we might be able to see him. He came into the world, which was darkness, and darkness uh, refers to man's sinfulness. He brought life and light into this world. For those who don't recognize the deadness and the darkness of this world, the idea of a Savior bringing life and life, life is not so compelling. But for those of us who recognize that we're in a situation where we need to escape, we're in a situation where we need deliverance, we're in a situation where we're in a trap that we need to be uh, delivered from, the idea of a Savior is absolutely compelling. John's claim about Jesus is worth considering when you realize the peril that we're in. It's a matter of life and death to realize who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do. Interesting stories occurred uh, of survival. There was uh, a USA Today article about life and death in the Twin Towers. And it did some research. It interviewed 300 survivors from the Twin Towers, from both the North Tower and the South Tower, to try to determine one thing. Why did some people stay in the towers and die? And other people live and, and leave the towers. There were a lot of people that had enough time to leave the towers that did not leave the towers. 
and there were people who left the towers uh, with, with uh, enough time to save their lives. And the question was, what was the difference between those two groups? Now, on the North Tower, anyone uh, on the top 16 floors had no chance of survival. But everybody underneath those first 16 floors had a chance to get out before the building collapsed. And everyone on the South Tower had a chance to get out before the bu building collapsed. They had 16 and a half minutes before the next plane hit the South Tower. Uh, so it was a matter of life and death decisions, and this research was conducted to see why people lived and why people died, what caused some people to stay in the South Tower and other people evacuate. Well, in this interview, it saw, it, it saw various factors. First factor was people lived or died in groups. They did what the group they were with was doing. So if the group they were with was staying, they were more likely to stay. And if the group they were with left, they were more li likely to leave. Now, they, a lot of these decisions, whether to stay or leave, leave, depended upon their bosses. If their bosses were staying, they tended to stay. And their bosses, if their boss got up and left, they tended to leave. Now, an interesting thing, too, was that among those who left, a far higher proportion of those who left were the lower, lower level workers. The higher level workers tended to stay. In fact, some guys were on the telephone trying to close deals while the towers were burning. They didn't want to let go of that last little um, opportunity. Now, another factor was that in the South Tower, there was a public announcement that went forth saying that the South Tower the second tower to be struck, prior to the plane hitting it, a public announcement went out to all the employees in the South Tower that the tower was secure and it was safe to stay in. People believe that. I mean, it seemed like who thought think another plane was going to come hit the South Tower? Some people believe that uh, in the process of evacuation, other people kept evacuating. Now, the people that were most likely to evacuate uh, in the South Tower were those who had been around during the bombing in the late 80s. They'd seen evil already, and they, were, they weren't going to take any chances. They are getting out of there, regardless of what the public uh, announcement said. Last week, they had a memorial service for 9-11, and um, this woman right here spoke about her survival. She was in the South Tower. Her name is... Kayla um, Bergeron, and uh, she told her story of how she survived. She said that when uh, the plane hit the North Tower, they um, got ready and they started to leave. She and her friend Susan were going down the stairs hand in hand. And then when the plane hit her tower, the South Tower, there was just massive confusion, dust everywhere. She was lost in, in, and she was wandering around and she didn't know where to go. She was tripping over desks, wires. Uh, she was confused and disoriented until she heard this voice. It was the voice of a bullhorn uh, in the uh, hand of a policeman or a fireman. And the voice in the bullhorn said this. It said, if you can hear the sound, follow the light. 
And so the two of them followed the light, oops, and made their way out to these exterior steps that are still memorialized today in the museum. And she says, when I reach the steps, I see that those steps separated the devastation behind me from the life in front of me. If we can hear the sound, we should follow the light. The, the Apostle Paul is speaking with a bullhorn. And he is saying, if you can hear this sound, follow the light. Jesus who created you has redeemed you. He's redeemed you out of death and darkness. If you can hear the sound, follow the light. John's voice is loud. And the question is, are we following the light out of the devastation that is behind us into the life that is in front of us? Look, we all have a different view of life. We might be like that salesman that's on the phone that thinks that nothing wrong is happening, that I'm still living in the midst of an opportunity. I can't let down um, my receiver to get out of this building because I got a big client on the phone and I got to finish this sales call. We're living in a tower that's not safe. The tower will be destroyed and nothing left in it will be worth holding on to. Trying to hang in there as though the tower were safe was a mistake. And it's a mistake that, to think that this life is a safe place. It is not a safe place. And Jesus came to call us out of the darkness and the deception of this world and to follow him into salvation. He talked about that, Jesus did. He said to people that he called to follow him, and they said, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have some other things at home to take care of. I have to do this or I have to do that. After I get done with that, then I'll follow you. Jesus said, too late. We need to close our last deal before we can follow you, Jesus. I got this important client on the phone. I just can't let go of, of what I have going in this world to follow you. Look, the tower is not safe and we must get out. The theme this morning is this, that our Creator became our Savior. And point number one is the Word became flesh. Let's take a look at verse 14. The Word became flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the first time I read this, the same question came to my mind that probably comes to your mind. How can God fit in a human body? How can the fullness of God, which is our Christian doctrine, fit inside of a, a body that has boundaries? How can the eternal fully dwell in the limited space of a human body? Why did God become one of us to dwell among us? Well, he became one of us to dwell among us to reveal the truth about God and the truth about ourselves and to show us the way out of our dilemma. 
But how is it that how is it that God could actually reside in a confined space? We know the temple can't, you know, hold him. We know it's just a symbol of his presence. We know that the universe can't hold him. So how can a, a human body be a place where he could reside fully? Well, think about it this way in a couple of illustrations and why it was necessary for God to come in and, and become visible to us in human form. Uh, what about history books? If you have a series of books on your shelf, The History of the World, and say it fairly well articulates the whole history of the world. Now, can all of the events in world history actually fit in this book? Can the geography of the world, can the places of the world, can the people of the world, can the events of the world fit in these books? Of course not. But all the stories that it describes can fit in the book. It can accurately depict all of what history represents, or most of it. Uh, it, the history itself can't fit in those books, but all that happened that's written in those books is all there. Another illustration might be this. If you look at a map of the United States, and here's a map of all of the uh, highways in the United States. Now, can all of the highways in the United States fit in this map? Well, of course they can't fit in the map. Yet the map is able to fully and completely uh, represent and describe all of the highways in the United States in a way that we could conceive of them in no other way. You can't get on top of a mountain and look out towards New York and see all of the highways of the United States. You, our perception is just too limited to do that. In order for us to get a grasp of what the highways in the United States look like, we have to put them onto a map. And of course, they don't themselves fit in that map, but their concept, the concept of them does fit in the map. And we can see from the map a lot more than we can see if we didn't have the map. The fullness of God dwells in Christ. To see God, to see Christ is to understand what God is like. No more could we see the highway systems by just looking out from a high peak than we could see God, by just looking out, we can't see enough of him to really conceive of him until he became one of us and represented his full nature in and through his son, Jesus Christ. When we look at Christ, we see God in the same way that when we look at a map, we see and understand all of the highways of the United States. In Christ, we can see it all. We can see God himself, that we can see the nature of God. We can see the truth that he has revealed about himself and about us as he became flesh to dwell among us. So what exactly do we see when we see Christ? What is it that we see about God when we look at Jesus Christ? Again, the theme this morning is our creator became our savior. And point number one is the word became flesh. And point number two is we have seen his glory. When we look at Jesus Christ, we see the very glory of God. What is that comprised of? Verse 14 again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. 
What if it would have just said full of grace? Or what if it would have just said full of truth? Why is it necessary for God's glory to be seen in the perfect balance of both grace and truth? Think about this for a second. Jesus is the perfect balance of these two things that seem to, uh, and sometimes, be in conflict with each other. Truth is the standard by which men ought to act. It's the standard by which we should treat each other. It's the standard by which we should conduct ourselves before God. And if all that, if all there was was truth, we would be in big trouble, right? Because we've all failed. But what would happen if there was just grace and no truth? What would happen is, oh, God doesn't hold us to any standard at all. No matter what we do, he's fine with it because he loves us so much. He's never going to discipline us, never going to punish us. Always his mercy will always be there. We can do whatever we want and we can be totally assured that we're breaking no standards because there are no standards. Just nothing but grace. You can see in both cases, there's, there's an aberration. There has to be a balance between grace and truth. It's just like uh, men and women in a marriage. When we're raising our kids, generally speaking, not always, the women are more gracious than the men. And the men are more stuck to truth than the women. Not always. But generally speaking, we associate the idea of grace and nurturing with the feminine and the idea of holding our, our kids accountable and holding them to a standard with the masculine. And you get into situations where one tries to dominate the other. And if, if truth dominates and there is no grace, there's no room for growth. There's no room for forgiveness. There's no room for, you know, uh, trying again a second chance. But if there's only grace and no standard, our children are ruined by love. It's not really love at all. Uh, Proverbs says, if you love your children, you'll discipline them. So love must have truth, and truth must have love. Uh, We see in the cross of Jesus Christ the most amazing combination of truth and mercy, love and justice. He's on that cross because of truth. He's on the cross because justice is unbending. Someone has to pay the price. The law is not going to be thwarted. And so he satisfies truth. He satisfies the law. He satisfies God's standard by he being the righteous one, uh, becoming our scapegoat in our place. But grace is so apparent there, saying to the thief on the cross, you know, today you're going to be with me in paradise. Forgive those, for they know not what they do, you hear from the words of Christ. You see this amazing combination of truth and mercy, truth and grace together in Jesus Christ. And this is the very essence of God. Could we have seen that without Jesus? Could we have seen that if God never became flesh to dwell among us? I'm sorry to say that in our age, because most people don't want to be told that they're wrong, that we've gotten into an imbalance, and that imbalance has been perilous to us and to the church. 
We're in an unbalanced age where grace is emphasized to the exclusion of truth, where truth is so de-emphasized that things that are unnatural are being celebrated to the peril of the unnatural who, who, who do the unnatural acts. It's in an effort not to offend the sensibilities of sinners. Does God forgive thieves? Of course He does. Does, does God forgive the sexually deviant? Of course He does. Does God forgive liars? Of course He does. Does God forgive the arrogant? Of course He does. These are all things that we are and we have been. Of course He does. But that doesn't mean that those behaviors please Him. And that in the end, He isn't uh, sanctifying us out of our fallenness and into His glory. His standard remains even though His mercy and His love is unfailing. His mercy isn't so that we can be comfortable in our sin. His mercy is to give us the room to seek His help to conquer our sin. Where did we come from? We came from the One who loves us. We came from the One who sacrificed Himself for us and for our redemption. That's where we came. We came from Jesus Christ, who is full of truth and grace. Again, our Creator became our Savior. The Word became flesh. We have seen His glory. I'd like to conclude this morning by reading from John chapter 6. I'll be reading verses 32 through 40. Beginning at verse 32, it says, and as you read these words uh, with me, prepare your heart for communion this morning. It says here, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen, yet you did not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life and will be raised and, he, and I will raise him up on the last day. Hey friends, thanks for listening to the Ultimate Outcomes Sermon Podcast. 
Ultimate Outcomes is a nonprofit organization founded on the biblical principle that knowing and applying God's truth makes a difference in the quality and destiny of our lives. It is our prayer that this podcast and its resources bless you and your churches as much as it has blessed all of us who have learned from the biblical teachings of Richard Elwell. Thanks for listening. And for more resources, visit www.ultimateoutcomes.org.